0: In the news, we learn that climate change is causing unprecedented heat waves, fires, floods and extinctions.
1: My greatest fear about climate change is my ability to breathe being impacted by increasing wildfires.
2: What I fear is that climate change is meaning starvation for so many people, migrants fleeing, looking for a more
0: secure source of food. But we rarely hear people talking about the emotional or mental health impact of these changes, and how they affect our ability to address the problem. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is a special program about the courage it takes
3: to acknowledge reality, bear the emotions that come up, and get engaged. Not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something.
0: That's all coming up from Safe Space Radio. I'm Dr. Anne Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. Over the next hour, we'll be exploring the impact of climate change on our mental health and how addressing the mental health impacts of climate change will help us be more effective at combating it. People in communities directly affected by ecological changes are at risk of post-traumatic stress and depression. Anxiety, worry,
4: stress, depression related to the changing environment. We've actually seen some preliminary
5: evidence that heat waves are associated with an increase in suicidality. But even those whose lives have not yet been profoundly altered by climate change events may feel deeply anxious about
0: the future for humankind. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and every week, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, I talk to at least one person who is struggling with despair, fear, or grief about the climate crisis. I was trained to help people address their own personal struggles, things that are about them and the people in their lives. But now, when my patients express their fear for their children's future, it's the same future that my child faces. The coronavirus, too, makes it clear that we all share vulnerability living on this planet. And we all face enormous public health risks when warnings are not addressed early. There is a whole new awareness of global vulnerability. I believe that my role as a psychiatrist is not only to treat illness, but also to help people access their courage. This hour, we'll explore three elements of courage in relation to climate change. The courage to face reality, to feel its emotional impact, and to do something about it. We'll start now with the courage it takes to face the reality of climate change. Psychologist Carol Gilligan says, Psychology is the study of those things that we know, that we cannot let ourselves know that we know. There are complex reasons why it is hard to let ourselves face a reality that feels huge, frightening, and powerful. If even thinking about climate change feels overwhelming, stay with us. This show is for you. Rising temperatures and carbon dioxide levels are scientifically established, and yet about 15% of the U.S. population don't believe climate change is real, or at least that humans have played a role in causing it. Partisanship and propaganda keep us from facing this threat together, but so does a deep sense of existential threat, fear, grief, and despair. I wanted to talk to someone who had survived a climate change-related disaster to see how first-hand contact shapes the way we face this frightening reality.
6: When Irma came off of Africa, I prepared as much as I possibly could have and could never, ever prepare for what actually happened.
0: Anne Bacette is a photographer living in the Virgin Islands. In 2017, when Category 5, Hurricane Irma, was approaching, Anne and a group of friends made the decision to gather in one house and to weather the storm together. And you could just see the silhouettes of
6: trees, like, swaying in the wind. And I was like, okay, this is the day. This is when Irma's coming through. I think a little before noon, everything hit the fan. Like, a whole window shattered. And it blew in on the kids.
0: They were screaming. So everyone in the house, 17 people and five dogs, piled into a basement storage closet. The only place left to go.
6: The air pressure's just dropping. It was insane. And I just remember grabbing my ears all the time, being like, oh God, that hurts. Water starts coming in the ceiling, oh. like coming down the wall. And it's coming through the bottom of the door, even though we had sandbags barricaded outside. And it's slowly slowly starting to fill the room. The generator was still going, so we still had power. That's what was scary about the water coming in. The water's almost up to the electrical outlet on the wall. What's going to happen when water goes into that and we're standing in it? I just remember looking around the room and looking at my best friend's face and, you know, she's holding her son and he's crying and asking why is this happening? And I remember glancing over at one point and seeing two of my guy friends look at each other and the looks on their faces. Oh, it's going to make me cry. Sorry. Um, The looks on their faces was what scared me the most. And tears are just pouring down my face. And I remember praying very hard and asking God not to take me from my mom (laughs) And I sent texts to my mom saying goodbye, like that I loved her so much. It was the most fearful time of my life ever. And it went on for like six hours. You know, it started to quiet down outside a little bit. We opened up that single door and what I saw, I mean, we were just all speechless. Like the railing that surrounded the porch outside blew completely sideways through the window and was piercing a kitchen cabinet, like just stabbed it.
0: In the months that followed the storm, the community had the enormous task of recovering and mending the wreckage and was without electricity for 86 days. After the immediate survival mode was over, and you were getting back to functioning. Did it feel like the storm haunted you?
6: Yes, it still does. Right before the one-year anniversary, one of my apps notified me of a storm coming off of Africa. My whole body started shaking. I fell to my knees, and I just uncontrollably started sobbing. And rocking, like I was being rocked asleep like a baby. Like, to have that physical reaction was
0: mind-blowing to me. This is post-traumatic stress. When a survivor is reminded of the trauma, they suffer intrusive thoughts about the event, like nightmares, flashbacks, and panic attacks. Anne recognized that her entire community was suffering from collective trauma. In search of a way to help, Anne took photographs of fellow survivors holding signs and objects that expressed their gratitude for surviving the storm. She created a photo book called Healing After Irma and donated some of the proceeds to disaster relief. This kind of work brings a community together. But when Anne tried to bring up the subject of climate change with fellow Irma survivors, it started an argument and felt really divisive. The thought of it ever happening again was unbearable. Before talking to Anne, I placed a lot of hope in the idea that as wildfires, flooding, and hurricanes increase, It would be a wake-up call and bring people together to make changes, demanding that governments, companies, and institutions around the world take action. And of course, this is happening to some extent. But I underestimated the way that trauma can make us shut down and avoid the subject. Terror can be paralyzing. When I think about the water levels rising in Anne's storage closet, I think about our planet. Our oceans rising as we watch, frozen with terror, uncertainty, and division. Our task is to move past this paralysis. How can we face this and move into action together? One way is to look to examples from the past when whole groups of people had to and did remake the way that they were living. Rabbi Shoshana
7: Friedman told me about the history that gives her courage. As a Jew, I carry in my bones the living memory that an entire way of life and an entire society can be torn away from you. The destruction of Jews in the Holocaust is one example. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem is another example. About 2,000 years ago, the Second Temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And there was devastation at the hands of the Romans. Large-scale destruction happened of human life, but also of customs and norms and society. Our relationship to a specific place became our relationship to text. We couldn't worship at the temple anymore. And so we began to be immersed in study. And that turned out to be an incredible adaptation because Jews have been able to live everywhere around the world. And feel connected to God and to our traditions through what became a very portable religion. It used to be a completely place-based religion. And so I go to that historical example because it shows that out of the ashes of the destruction of one way of life can come the seed of something deeply beautiful and vibrant.
0: Facing the reality of climate change becomes even more difficult when bombarded with propaganda meant to persuade people that it doesn't exist or isn't a threat. Fossil fuel companies stand to lose a lot of money when we transition to all renewable energy. They have an interest in creating highly credible-seeming critiques of climate science. To learn more about the power of such propaganda and a force that can help people see through it, I spoke with John Kaiser, an instructor of history at Wake Tech Community College in North Carolina. For much of his life, John was a steadfast climate denier.
8: There was a video that I used to show when I would put out tables for my conservative group at my college, and it was made to look really serious and really legitimate. So there were two news anchors sitting at a desk, or they were supposed to look like news anchors. And they would tell you all about how Climate change is actually going to make the world a better place because there's going to be more CO2 and because plants thrive on CO2 and they'll get bigger and lusher and the fruits and vegetables they produce will be even bigger and more nutritious. And so it was an entire well orchestrated kind of bit of propaganda.
9: evidence that increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going to cause a disaster is somewhere between slim and none. However, the evidence that it's doing a good thing by lengthening the growing season and making plants grow better is somewhere between large and overwhelming.
8: I believed everything in that video when I was showing it. I was sure it was true. I had a kind of political and religious perspective on it. The political perspective was kind of related to this idea that ideologically I couldn't accept climate change because if I did that, I had to accept greater government action to tackle the problem. If you're a conservative, you're led to believe that the government can't do anything well, right? At the very best, it does it relatively poorly compared to private companies. At the worst, it does it in ways that infringe on your liberties and your rights. So what you end up with is this kind of fear that if you have any kind of area where the government expands, it means your liberty declines. And so the ideology says you can't trust government to handle problems. Well, climate change is a problem, and most of the solutions we see offered that are associated with climate change are government solutions. Therefore, well, I'm just not going to trust climate change. My father was very fundamentalist in his faith. Uh, He was a Seventh-day Adventist. We would go to these creation talks, and within that, there's a kind of a whole dialogue of, you know, God flooded the earth once and made his promise he'd never flood it again. So when these environmentalists tell you the seas are rising and they're going to flood over the land, well, then they don't believe in God, because God told us he would never do it again, so it can happen again. And so I had those kind of two things, that religious and political, converging that made me a pretty strong climate science denier.
0: I wanted to know how an idea that was so intertwined with John's sense of self could actually change. When and how did he change his mind?
8: I was a teaching assistant, and one of my students came in to me because they hadn't done the last paper. And they told me, I came out to my parents and they kicked me out of the house. And I don't have access to my laptop anymore because they won't give it to me. I don't know how I'm gonna keep up in this class. I feel like I'm just gonna fail and I have to withdraw. I felt like a miserable human being. And I felt awful for things I said in the past about homosexuality. And I saw this suffering person in front of me whose parents' fear of homosexuality had led them to essentially disown their child. And I connected that with a lot of the arguments I made at kind of an emotional level, because I had to hear the student say this and realize, I've been parenting these arguments about homosexuality that grow out of the kind of beliefs this person's parents have. I can't be a part of that anymore. I have to walk away from it.
0: For John, this was a life-changing moment. He started questioning his entire
3: worldview.
8: That was kind of that first big break. And then after that, well, then it was the drug war and other things. But I mean, that was the first rupture there. That was the first real tear away at my identity as a conservative. I lost that identity and in the process was able to accept that climate change is there and is a reality that we have to face, right? This is a climate crisis. And I now have kids who are going to grow up in this world and I should want to do it my part here to try and get some remedy to the dangers that my generation and my parents' generation have contributed to with the catastrophes that will follow with climate crisis.
0: Perhaps the most effective tool to help us face the reality of the climate crisis is to think about the next generation. If we've been traumatized by a climate disaster, the fear may be too close to home. And even if we haven't, many of us live with a kind of pre-traumatic dread which can also be paralyzing. I believe that love is stronger than fear. When we tap into love for future generations we can access our courage to face what we fear and act. One day after school, nine-year-old Chris Childs came home, laid down on the couch, and cried. His mother, Hillary, had no idea why
5: he was upset. She was terrified. He was so clearly in his own world of grief. This little pale face, streaked with tears, and his whole body shaking with these inconsolable sobs. So... Of course, I immediately went over to him. It was crying like I had never heard in either of my kids ever. And one of the things that made it different is it didn't feel like they were resolving. I started guessing what was upsetting him. But I couldn't get to what it was really about, and he couldn't bring himself to name it. We finally realized it had come out of a class discussion on climate change.
0: Here's how Chris remembers that experience. I just felt, like, scared. Yeah. What was it that
1: scared you?
10: I don't really know. Like, probably, like... That people are, like, making the world
0: worse. I expected Chris to say he was crying about animals dying, or even his own mortality... But what was upsetting him was a kind of crisis of faith in humanity. He really didn't know if he could trust people to
5: be good. As a parent, it was kind of devastating because it felt really hard to reassure him that on some level his fears were not
2: true. So first question, what is Shady Hill doing about climate change?
0: Inspired by his fourth grade teacher, Chris and a few of his classmates started interviewing people at his school to learn about what they are doing to address climate change. He asked three of his classmates to help. Well, Chris, I first want to commend you and your classmates, Langston, Danny, and Mina, for taking on this project to find out more about what the school is doing around climate change.
3: And, you know, nearly every decision we make.
0: Chris and his friends found out that their school is already doing a lot. They offer public transportation passes to faculty and staff, they get their power from solar panels, and they have composting bins in the cafeteria.
1: Learning more about what we can do and what people are doing was helpful.
0: So that makes a huge difference, just knowing that people are really
2: working on this. Yeah. People are doing stuff about climate change. It's not just like that. People are making it worse. Eventually, Chris's
0: entire fourth grade class gave a presentation to the school about how to fight climate change. Chris, who until now hated public speaking, led the presentation.
2: Back in Temper, there was a day when students all over the world walked out of school to bring attention to climate change. People in my class were talking about the strike and what could happen to the earth if we didn't start protecting it better. Some of the things they said really scared me. We hope you will help our class take action against climate change.
0: Chris let himself feel his grief, and then he plunged into finding out more with others. And it had a ripple effect. The other kids in his class started feeling better too.
11: It made me kind of happy when we started this project. We're trying to make a difference in climate change, and that made me very happy.
0: Finding people to connect with can lead to a sense of purpose and greater clarity about the actions we can take. Fear thrives in isolation, connection fosters our courage. Chris's mother, Hillary, joined a climate activism group called Mothers Out Front. They are currently working to transition her state's power grid toward all renewable energy. Much as Mothers Against Drunk Driving managed to shift the laws, culture, and norms about drunk driving, perhaps it is kids and their parents who will be the most compelled to help all of us face the changes that we need to make. As we begin to take in the true threat of ocean levels rising, or more hurricanes and wildfires, it can stir up powerful feelings like fear, grief, hopelessness, anger, or guilt. It takes courage to choose to feel the emotional impact of climate change, instead of pushing it away. For the rest of this program, we'll be exploring how we can embrace the painful feelings that climate change brings up in order to get involved and take action. More coming up after the break. I'm Dr. Anne Hallward, and this is a special program from Safe Space Radio about the courage it takes to face, feel, and address climate change. In this part of the show, we'll be exploring the three feelings that come up most frequently in my conversations with people about climate change grief, hopelessness, and fear. They often coexist, but we'll be exploring each one at a time. We'll start with grief. Back in 1995, during my very first medical school class in psychiatry, I learned about the distinction between grief and depression. Depression, we were told, is static a hole we can fall into and get stuck in. In contrast, grief is dynamic. It moves us. In a grieving process, we don't end up in the same place where we started. I often talk to my patients about grief as a deep river. You can enter the river and pick up your feet, trusting that the current will carry you. And when you're ready to swim to the bank, you come out at a new place. Grief has carried you there. It can be terrifying to really feel the impact of climate change. We often avoid thinking about it at all, for fear we will fall into that pit of depression. What if instead we could learn to trust our feelings? Listen to the word emotion. Feelings move us. If we let ourselves feel, we literally let ourselves be moved into a new state, a new clarity, and a new action. As strange as it may seem, our willingness to let ourselves feel vulnerable as we think about climate change is directly related to our capacity to act courageously.
1: I was on the phone with my mom and I was really emotional because I was seeing two blue herons on the beach. Maya Wickler is a climate justice organizer and writer in British Columbia, Canada. I was so moved and just thinking about how precious this environment is and this world and she kind of laughed it off at first and was like, "Maya, you're you need more sleep." And I said, "No, I'm happy I'm crying. I'm happy I'm feeling. It means I have a deep love and When I feel grief, I'm happy that I'm still feeling. If I'm reacting and responding and feeling this spectrum of emotion, then I'm not allowing this to become my new normal. And I want to feel every aspect of this world and this life because I'm being fully present. And if I'm fully present, all of my senses are engaged. I'm fully alive I feel that's a form of resistance itself because I'm never going to be close to complacency. I refuse to accept that there's little that can be done. Maya's passion for the land moved her
0: to take action. Maya is directing a short documentary film in the Arctic on the intergenerational, women-led fight to protect the Arctic refuge from the ongoing environmental and human rights crisis caused by climate change and the fossil fuel industry. Maya is an example to me of courageous action against climate change, fueled
1: by love. I'm fighting for what I love. I have a deep love for this place and these forests, this ocean, this coast, these communities, for me, there's beauty and loving something so deeply that you want to spend every single day fighting for it. It's a beautiful way to be in relationship with the world and life.
0: Everything we do to foster our love of nature can fuel our courage to address climate change. It's also good for our mental health. Taking time each day to go outside can inspire awe. It doesn't have to be grand. Even the smallest details like watching a bee drink from a flower or tree branches moving in the wind can help us access
1: a deep sense of calm. So much of Western culture is disconnected from the land and our feet are hitting concrete every day And Part of climate justice in this fight is restoring our connection to this land and refusing to accept this individualistic compartmentalization of ourselves and the world that we live in.
0: Young people like Maya have inherited the problem of climate change, and many of them struggle with a sense of hopelessness about the future. In 2019, a survey conducted by Business Insider found that 38% of millennials believe that people should consider climate change when deciding whether or not to have children. In such an uncertain world, it might not feel responsible to bring new life into the mix. But making a choice based on hopelessness can leave us feeling robbed of the future we imagined. In a 2018 New York Times survey, nearly one-third of the participants cited climate change as a reason that they either had or planned to have fewer children than they actually wanted. Ela Zemmer is a psychotherapist from Baltimore. Ela recently confessed to her 98-year-old grandmother that she was having doubts about having children because of the climate crisis.
9: This is a woman who was born in rural Ukraine, Russia who lived through the Holocaust, 13 different camps. She chose to conceive my father in one of the refugee camps. He was born a month before the war ended. For her, it was survival. She speaks so much to that being this deep investment in the future. Two generations later, no time at all. Two generations later, her granddaughter is saying, I'm not sure I have hope enough to have a child. Watching the pain it caused her, I was feeling like I had just burdened her with pain that she shouldn't have to witness in her lifetime. She said in French, my life has inoculated me against hopelessness and I just really have started to wake up to what is it that I need to contend with and work through in order to continue that legacy doesn't feel at all right for me to end this cycle in a place of fear and contraction After a
0: lot of soul searching, Ayla found a new way to think about continuing her grandmother's legacy.
9: It started with a new relationship to the word hope. Hope as a verb, not as a noun. I don't have hope, right, but I can hope and I can hope as a verb, as an action, that my choices and my daily movements and my intentions can come from a place of hoping. And so that started to really shift the dialogue for me with myself around this. I went from the question being, should I or shouldn't I have children? To how is it that I best want to nurture the future? By
0: choosing to think of hope as a verb, Ayla moved from passive despair to active engagement. She still hasn't decided whether she'll have a child, but for now, she is nurturing the future by leading discussion groups for women seeking to address climate change in their communities. Many of my patients tell me about their hopelessness about climate change. They just can't imagine that the whole world will rally to make the changes that are necessary to reduce carbon emissions. To them, it just doesn't feel realistic or even imaginable. Anissa Khan is a 23-year-old from Chennai, India. She's the executive director at Sustain Us, a global network of young people who are working to address climate change. As an activist in the climate justice movement, she frames climate change as an ethical issue rather than merely an environmental one.
11: Anissa offered me another way to think about hope in relation to climate change. In our fight against climate change, we're being given an opportunity to bring together all of our really strong existing movements for justice, for women's rights, for Indigenous sovereignty, for labor. And I think that climate justice is really this umbrella under which all of these movements come together and through which we can create policies that bring about racial equity, gender equity, that can create millions of jobs and that can really reinvigorate democracy and what society looks like from the ground up. With the climate crisis, we often talk about everything that we have to lose, but rarely talk about the hopefulness and everything that we can gain And I think that it is creating this opportunity for us to come together and create the kind of policies and world that is just for everyone. And that is something to hold on to.
0: Although Anissa has hope that we can fight climate change together, she isn't immune to what is perhaps the most universal response to the climate crisis, fear. Fear. As a young woman in India, Anissa has experienced the fear that large-scale climate change disasters can bring.
11: I was in Paris for the United Nations climate talks. And while I was sitting in this room watching these countries, you know, fight over small words that in the end don't really add up to that much, a pretty devastating hurricane hit Chennai, the city where my parents were living. I remember getting a message from my mother saying, we don't have electricity, the house is flooding, and her saying, you know, we might not be able to reach you for some time. I actually didn't end up hearing from them for about three days, and about 300 people had died because of the flooding, and I had no idea if my family was okay, if they'd survived. I'd never felt fear like that and had never felt the climate crisis hit so personally and so close to home. The people who are actually on the front lines of the climate crisis are people of color, indigenous people, women, low-income families, and families like mine in the global south in developing countries like India. I think that people of color in general have been pushed into living in places that are going to be hit the hardest by climate change. The places where you see industries come up, where toxic pollution is the highest, these communities and places, especially in developing countries, don't have the resources to adapt to climate change or to deal with the losses and damages that come from it. Putting food on the table is hard for people already.
0: Fear of this magnitude can be paralyzing. We often hear about the fight-or-flight response— But neurologically speaking, there's a third F, freeze. When we feel threatened, we move into fight, flight, or freeze response. And when we're frozen, we shut down, go numb, lose our voice, or dissociate. Here's environmental psychologist Dr. Renee Lertzman.
10: What we know about fear is that when we learn new information that is evoking a fear response, that we are actually cognitively impaired.
0: Paralyzing fear might be the biggest obstacle to getting involved with climate change in effective ways. In my office, I can see when someone goes into freeze mode. They look like a deer in the headlights, unable to make a move or access their feelings.
10: We want to be really careful about using fear, about fear-based campaigns. It drives us down to a tendency to be more simplistic and reductive and black and white, contracted, rigid ways of thinking and feeling. I think the key, honestly, is naming what we may be feeling and thinking. That is so scary. When we are in a place of calm, we actually have far more capacity to access our creativity, resourcefulness, strategic thinking, empathy, long-term thinking, foresight. You know, all of those capacities are far more accessible to us when we are calm, when we are in balance.
0: Kate Shapira teaches at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. In 2013, she began to notice how hard it was to do exactly what Dr. Lertzman suggests, to talk to people in an intimate way about her fears about climate change. When she tried to talk about it, she was often met with silence. And then she got an idea about how to make it possible to invite these
4: conversations. My husband's a cartoonist, and we have a lot of Peanuts comic strips around. Lucy Van Pelt has a little booth that looks like a lemonade stand, but instead of selling lemonade, she offers psychiatric help for five cents. Somehow that shook into the idea of making a little booth that offered climate anxiety counseling for five cents. Tell me what your booth looks like. If I was walking down the street
0: and I saw you, what would I see?
4: You would see a kind of grayish turquoise colored uh, rectangle with yellow lettering that says, climate anxiety counseling, five cents. I hung a sign over that that says, here to listen. What are the moments when you feel the most anxiety? What are the most intense? When I
3: hear about our species, our animals. I
4: definitely try to start out mostly asking questions to zero in on the way that the person who's talking with me understands the situation, understands what they're feeling just the inevitability of this climate change and that it needs to be, you know, some real hard decisions have to be made immediately, if not yesterday. I mean, I'm thinking there are painful times ahead. As I started to listen to people, one of the major things that started to come out right away was that people feel helpless, they feel isolated. So what I started doing was I started looking for local organizations to try to connect people to some kind of ability to participate.
0: Fear gets stronger in isolation. When we feel a strong sense of connection to others who are working for change, it can support our mental health and empower us to address the problem of climate change itself. So often, fear is made worse by not knowing what to do about it. Connecting to local organizations working to address climate change in your area is a wonderful antidote to fear, because you will feel less alone and more supported to make a difference. Courage doesn't mean being unafraid. Courage is the ability to do something even though we're afraid. It also means leading from the heart. The root of the word courage is core, like cur, the French word for heart. When we have the courage to go toward the feelings that we fear, then we can act from our hearts. After a short break, we'll be back to explore how letting ourselves feel and talk about the pain of climate change can move us out of paralysis and into action, both individually and collectively. While we're gone, I invite you to check out our website at safespaceradio.com. We have links to many resources to help you summon up your courage to address climate change. While you're there, give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dr. Anne Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. This hour, we're talking about the mental health challenges of facing, feeling, and addressing the climate crisis. For this last part of the show, we'll focus on the emotional benefits of taking action to address climate change. We'll end with ideas for meaningful steps that each of us can take to nurture the future.
3: People say, how in the world are you supposed to tackle these issues when you're outraged or you're in despair or you're panicked or just deeply anxious? Dr. Lisa
0: Vance-Sostren is a psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., who specializes in the psychological impact of the climate crisis.
3: What I tell people is these feelings that they have are authentic and they're warranted. I can understand them. I identify with them. When you take these feelings and you try to hide them, you bury them deep someplace, they don't ever really go away. They just leach into your system and continue to poison you in ways that sometimes aren't apparent. The most effective way to confront things that are bothering us is to recognize them, unpack them. There is a lot of energy embedded in those emotions. Take the energy of those emotions and redirect them into empowering action. Not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something. We
0: need collective action to address climate change on a global scale. Every government, company, and institution in the world will need to make changes. Each of us, as individuals, can play important, even essential roles within the organizations, communities, and groups that we're a part of. While we can make necessary lifestyle changes in our homes and in our consumption patterns, we are most powerful when we act as a catalyst galvanizing others into action with us. One person who installs solar panels can inspire their neighbors to do the same. One person who dares to speak up or take the initiative to make a change can have a tremendous influence on others.
3: This is how we change society. It's by people seeing what other people are doing, because it's the herd mentality. We're copycats. Dr. Van Sostren
0: also told me that when we come together and work to fight climate change as part of a group, It is not only more effective at bringing change, it inspires awe to feel part of something larger than yourself. And this alone can be good for
3: our mental health. We know that what we do as a group can have a hugely healing effect on us when compared to what we do in isolation at home you can just feel that sense of something special happening inside where you forget about yourself. You are a part of something that you feel is noble and right and good and the barrier breaks down without ever even being conscious of it. But you're one for that moment and this has a special healing capacity.
0: I believe that accessing and finding our own courage is also good for our mental health. I've been conducting an informal study of the forces that help people access their courage. After collecting over a thousand stories, I've learned that it comes down to two things, love and clarity. When people feel loved, we draw strength from that, or when we love someone else and want to protect them, or feel love even toward our own future self. It helps us find courage. And when we are clear about what is at stake, what our values are, and clear about what we can do to make a difference, we are more likely to take a courageous step. When we find the courage to take that first step, to do something to address the climate crisis, we find other people who are also working for change. Together, we become more powerful and more effective. And this also feeds our courage. I saw this in my own state when a pipeline corporation announced plans to build a terminal in South Portland to pipe oil from the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, down to southern Maine for export. Tar sands oil requires the most toxic form of chemical refining and is already poisoning ecosystems in Alberta.
5: In South Portland this morning, there is a push to protect the city from tar sands oil.
3: Many people fear that if a pipeline carrying the oil to Maine ruptures, it could cause an environmental
5: catastrophe. That's right. And as result.: risotto- when
3: 82-year-old Rachel
0: Berger learned about the terminal plans, she wanted to do something to stop them. She didn't have a strategy, but she started a group that met weekly at her house to figure out how to fight the pipeline company together.
2: One of the things I learned way back was. Even if you don't know what you're going to do, show up, be there. One of the people in the group wanted to write an ordinance, and we were told from the city that we had to have 900 signatures to be able to put it on the ballot. This was all, for me, a new learning thing. So we needed people to do door-to-door to to collect those signatures. In that process, we got close to 4,000 signatures when all we needed was 900. That was the energy that was going into this. Lots of people said, I just love that we can finally do something together. And I think they felt the strength of that. But as the
0: movement started to gain traction, the pipeline company caught on. They started a disinformation campaign, and the ordinance lost by 193 votes. The group didn't give up. They wrote a new, clearer ordinance, and they testified in front of
2: South Portland's city council. One meeting after another, more and more people would come, We must think of our future
7: children, children's children.
5: And for the people who feel that the money from the oil and jobs are more important, you don't have jobs on a dead planet. This is not just a South Portland issue, but an international issue. We object. We most passionately object. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir.
0: Eventually, there was a final vote, and this time, the ordinance
2: passed. Everybody was massively happy, hysterically happy. So we've just got this one little city. We've got this one little city we need to look after. But what's exciting about it is other cities are taking. When we've got a model ordinance, Portland is taking it, and then Falmouth will, and Yarmouth will, and so on people are looking to us that way and people are talking about South Portland like it's a place where stuff is happening.
0: What was it like for you to feel like you had really helped
2: make this happen? It made me realize how a group of people in this case it became a large group how powerful they are and I still underestimate that and it's something we all have to acknowledge and really take in how powerful ordinary people can be working together to do the right thing. We tend to think that all the people with the money are so powerful and we can't change anything, but we can change things and we just have to follow what we know is right. My goal is basically to stop all the stuff that's going on that's wrong. My determination is to do it until the end of my life for all I can do.
0: There is evidence from around the world that citizen action can sway even the most powerful institutions. The Climate Action Group 350.org has mobilized people in every country in the world except North Korea. More than a thousand institutions around the world have pledged to divest from the fossil fuel industry, including the entire country of Ireland. Canada recently passed a federal tax on carbon emissions. The UK imposed a moratorium on fracking. And Finland is phasing out the use of all coal. Our guests have made many recommendations for how to face, feel, and address climate change. To summon up your courage and dare to face the reality of climate change, learn about what's happening and allow yourself to feel the grief, hopelessness, or fear that comes up. Let these feelings move you into action. Talk through your feelings with other people and listen compassionately to them. Being heard gives us a sense of calm, and the clarity to act effectively. Let love for your children and for all future generations fuel your determination. When there are setbacks, persist. Invite your friends to join a climate action group that is working in your area, or if none exists, create one yourself. Working together will not only help you be effective, it will give you a sense of being connected to something greater than yourself. Visit us at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to my full interview with Dr. Lisa Van Susteren and get more tips and resources for how to address the climate crisis. You can also subscribe to stay connected to us and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at SafeSpace Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Mary Quintus, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisors, Jim Russell and Shuka Kalantari, our listeners, Marcia Sharp. Jenny Riggins, Paul Neustadt, and my entire extended family. Thank you to our production advisors from two organizations in the Bronx, DreamYard, an arts and social justice program, and Here to Here, an equity and career pathways program. Thanks, too, to Sophia McNulty, our summer intern, our creative advisory committee here in Portland, Maine, and to all our donors who made this show possible. I'm Dr. Anne Hallward. Thanks for listening.